everyone. Welcome, welcome to show number 40 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here from Latvia. Joined here with my co-host, Fernando Ulrich from Brazil. Hello, Matthew. And today we're going to introduce our special guest, Dr. Lawrence White. Dr. White is an expert on monetary, banking, and economic history. He is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and professor of economics at George Mason University. He blogs over at Alt-M, that's alt-m.org. He has written many books, including The Clash of Economic Ideas and Free Banking in Britain. He has done many interesting things in the field of uh, money, such as being a visiting lecturer at the Swiss National Bank. Dr. White, thanks a lot for joining us and welcome to Crypto Voices. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I really appreciate uh, you joining us. Um, as I was mentioning to you in the pre-show, you know, Dr. Selgin, uh, who you work with quite a bit, was uh, our first guest. We we're really happy to have him uh, then. That, that's still one of my favorite shows, actually. Go back and listen to him. Uh, make sure I, I catch all the bits uh, of what he was saying about money and, and banking. And uh, really happy to have, uh, have you here now. So let's jump right into it. We got with Dr. Selgin, actually, we I had a lot of questions uh, myself and Fernando. We wanted to ask him just sort of generally about money. Uh, and it took us a while to get to the topic of Bitcoin. I think with you, we won't uh, spend so long on the, on the analog world. But I do have <laughs> one or two questions uh, before, before we get to Bitcoin. Okay. I think I may set the table as well. We might revisit this. But uh, a paper that, that sort of influenced me when I was learning a lot about Austrian economics and, and money and, and you know, listeners know it's Fernando and my interest was a paper that you wrote with Dr. Selgin uh, in the 90s uh, uh, called In Defense of Fiduciary Media. Uh-huh. This question of fiduciary media, uh, we, we could obviously, I'm, I'm sure you, you do courses on this and there's just not enough time to, to dig into this uh, in, our, in the hour that we have you. We could compare different schools of thought and fiduciary media like from the New Keynesians or... Uh, modern monetarist view or whatnot. But I really am curious, uh, now that we have you here, just uh, you know, maybe one or two points on a very specific uh, sort of schism in this fiduciary media, which is basically fractional reserves. I thought that was coming, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically because I'm curious about it and uh, it, it seems to be a long going debate, at least in the Austrian or Misesian school. And it's, it's sort of ex exactly what you addressed in that paper in the 90s. So whether it's legal, whether it's economic, whether it's this idea of the, um, the warning sticker, you know, what is the big deal with fiduciary media in the Austrian school, this debate over, say, your side, yeah. the modern free banking school versus the, say, Rothbardian 100%, 100% gold reserve uh, side? What are the main points of contention in this, in this debate? Well, there was uh, just a few weeks ago a debate between George Selgin and Bob Murphy. Yes, I will link to that in the show notes. I, I saw it. It was very good. Which uh, covers a lot of this ground. But Murray Rothbard took the position that fractional reserve banking was inherently fraudulent because the bank is promising to pay people gold that it doesn't currently have in the vault, and yet it has an obligation to pay whenever the customer shows up and asks to be paid. So there are, couple, there are two main issues. One is whether this is kind of legally permissible. And it's a debate among economists, so none of us, are, I suppose, are experts in jurisprudence. But uh, the view that George uh, Selgin and I take is that this is a, a kind of debt contract. It's a demandable debt contract. Uh, and there's nothing obviously shocking or crazy about a debt contract that's redeemable on demand. It's just kind of the limit of having a bank deposit that's redeemable every day, an overnight deposit. Uh, or you could go from redeemable in a year, redeemable in a month, redeemable in a day, redeemable whenever you show up. And it does, of course, require the bank to prudently manage its asset portfolio so that it's in a position to pay when people show up. Uh, but our position on the sort of freedom of contract is that until the bank fails to pay somebody who asks to redeem, it hasn't voided the contract. 
The contract doesn't say the bank has to hold 100% reserves. It just says, if you look at the face of a typical 19th century banknote, it says, we'll pay the bearer on demand. So when the holder of the note shows up at the bank's counter, do they pay him? If they do, then the contract has been fulfilled. The second uh, source of issue on which people debate, and that's what the Selgin-Murphy debate is about, is about the economic consequences of allowing fractional reserve banking. Uh, and uh, George and I have emphasized uh, there's a reason that people agree, have agreed historically to these kind of contracts. There are some pretty obvious advantages to them. From the point of view of bank depositors, and without anybody intending it, from the point of view of the entire monetary system. So from the point of view of a depositor, it means, uh, by contrast to a warehousing arrangement where there's a gold coin held in the vault designated for that depositor, uh, the depositor with fractional reserve banking, since the money is being lent out and earning interest, Banks that are competing for this business will pay interest to their depositors and they won't have to charge storage fees the way a warehouse does. So that's the choice that faces the customer. We, Of course, anybody should be free to keep their money in a warehouse or a safety deposit box if they want. But those who would rather have interest on their account and not pay storage fees uh, will be attracted to this, provided, of course, they believe the bank is prudently managed and will, in fact, pay them when they show up. And that's not a crazy belief to have because reputable banks have done this for decades without ever defaulting on their uh, obligations to pay on demand. So it's a more economical payment system. If people just want storage, then they hire the services of a vault or a safety deposit box. But if people want to make payments, this is a more economical way to make payments. And the, the reason it's feasible for the bank to have more demand deposits than it has uh, gold in the vault, in the case of a gold standard, is that most people don't show up every day to withdraw their entire deposit. And banks learn uh, statistically how small a reserve they can manage uh, to meet all their obligations with. And the rest of it they can lend out, which means that the economy as a whole, and this is a point Adam Smith emphasized, the economy as a whole, instead of holding so much gold sitting in vaults, now has a portfolio of productive machines. They, the gold is lent out to businesses. The businesses buy machines. So they may buy imported machines, in which case the gold leaves the country. Uh, and now the economy is more productive, and Adam Smith gave – the banking system a lot of credit for Scotland's catching up with England in its industrialization. Now, Larry, as someone who's been a student under Jesus Huerta de Soto, I've come from from the 100% okay. uh, reserve banking, and I think it's it's been around almost three years that I've started uh, studying uh, a little more more deeply this matter and currently I think I'm much more the fractional reserve banking side than the 100% and I've read a lot of what the Spanish uh, Spanish scholars wrote like uh, Juan Ramon Rayo I know you've yeah. been in some some debates with him as well that's right and they call they call them the liquidity theory scholars they, they, and there's one point that I think they make which is which I think it's very important and sometimes I get the feeling that even the term fractional reserve banking is wrong in itself because what the 100% reservists they focus is only on demand liabilities that's right what they say is that you should have 100% demand assets so perfect liquid assets for all the demand liabilities but they say nothing whatsoever at, for the the other the remaining part of its liabilities so we have also time deposits we have bonds with different maturities and these also must be covered by assets yeah if i can interrupt i i think sure. i think you're not being quite fair people have written about from the 100% reserve perspective about time deposits 
and their position is that when a time deposit matures, the bank needs to have the cash on hand. If the depositor decides to roll over the money, redeposit it into a new time deposit, only then can the bank reinvest it, which seems to me very uh, awkward and inconvenient for the bank and means that they're not going to be able to pay as much. But they do have this position that the bank should match the maturity of its assets and its liabilities. Which I think it applies the same for demand liabilities. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's just the same application. That's right. Yeah. It's a generalization. Yeah. You know, we, we can move on now uh, from, from this, but I, it's just one thing I wanted to sort of get on the record because, uh, at least from my side as well, you know, maybe when I was first learning about Austrian economics and reading Rothbard and Rothbard obviously is is very clear and a great writer in many many ways you know like for maybe six months or something I was sort of convinced at this but you know you start to move on and read more about the banking system and I have a background in finance as well and like so you just sort of see that the general market doesn't really demand that type of a service and like you said if they want it they can deliver it and uh, one more point I just thought it was interesting I saw um, like gold money is a perfect example Jim Turk's gold money service, you know, I like that service. That's a money warehouse. Mm-hmm. He, for years, has been sort of championing this, this idea in the market, like bringing gold back as a, as a money warehouse. But it's funny, like even a couple weeks ago, I got an email from them that said, uh, if you would like, you can start lending against your gold. Interesting, interesting. With uh, some peer-to-peer lending, yeah, some peer-to-peer lending companies. <laughs> And that, that's, a, that's a technological advancement as well because peer-to-peer lending Uh, this is not blockchain-based or Bitcoin-based peer-to-peer lending. This is just simply centralized fractionalizing of loans. You know, someone wants to borrow 100 euros, you can have 50 people giving two euros each as a loan, for example. Yeah. But that's centralized hub platforms. But you know, same point. They wouldn't be offering that service as gold money if it wasn't in demand that people wanted. You know, a little bit more interest, maybe a little bit less safety. Yeah. So that's that's just a very broad uh, view from my side. But I, I was never Right. Clearly uh, convinced on the on the 100% reserve side. So, if I can make just one more point, uh, Huerta de Soto's position, if uh, goes beyond just ordinary deposits, and his view is that you can't, you, you shouldn't be allowed to have a financial contract that doesn't have a definite term. True. Before repayment takes place, so. That outlaws all kinds of loans with, that allow prepayment, which is an ordinary feature of every mortgage issued in the United States. Uh, so it's actually all kinds of financial products would be affected if we uh, impose these kinds of restrictions and prohibitions. So just to, to be clear and, and kind of summarize, and if there was no Bitcoin, we're just about to, to talk about Bitcoin. What would be what would be your prescription then for a more stable and sound money and medium of exchange than we currently have today? Well, um, how far do I get to unwind central banking? <laughs> as far as far as you want. <laughs> Good point. Right. So I've I've written about how well the free banking systems worked in the 19th century, where there's no central bank, uh, the banknotes, the circulating currency, and the deposits are issued by competing commercial banks. These banks uh, check one another, constrain one another through the process of adverse clearings. Any bank that starts expanding beyond what its customers demand will find its checks and its banknotes being deposited into other banks, which will bring them back for redemption. And so uh, that bank that overissued will be losing reserves pretty quickly. So it's a self-regulating kind of a system. Uh, so that the historical evidence tells me, or it seems to me to show, uh, was a more stable system, not subject to the kind of instability that central banks create. And they create it by running uh, monetary policy that's unpredictable. Uh, and they create it by creating moral hazard through their promise to support the commercial banks. So we've weakened uh, the commercial banking system by giving it privileges and access to bailouts. Uh, so that my entire program, I'm not sure which should go first, but my program would include eliminating central banks, eliminating deposit insurance, 
uh, and too big to fail in other forms. And putting the banking system back on a responsible basis where if you violate your contracts, you are, uh, you know, shut down and the banking system is run according to ordinary contract law. So now I want to want to then take another step um, into how money uh, does develop or could develop in a freer system. So one more sort of long term question, uh, but with your answer, please, like if you would like to interweave Bitcoin here, uh, please, you know, feel free. But a simple question, basically, what is the blueprint? Have you discovered in your historical uh, academic work, you know, some sort of a blueprint of how money does arise in society, you know, silver, gold, wampum, tobacco. Could Bitcoin follow this blueprint that they, uh, they use or is it, is it different? Short answer is it's different. So the historical examples we have of money arising spontaneously out of barter are all commodity monies, meaning they're useful for something besides their use as a medium of payment. So you had shells, you had, uh, you mentioned wampum, uh, you had gold and silver. In some places you had salt, peppercorns, but all these things were initially valued for their consumption. Uh, And in the case of gold and silver, it's because people wore them as jewelry, mostly. Uh, and Bitcoin's very different from that because it never had any, it, it's not a commodity, it's not even tangible. <laughs> so it never had any non-monetary demand. It kind of launched itself into having, into being a positively valued asset kind of by its own bootstraps. It's quite remarkable. Uh, and now that it has a positive value and one that people are becoming you know, fairly comfortable with and familiar with, it is conceivable that people will, and of course some people already have started, uh, using it as a medium of exchange. Uh, Now it has some obstacles before it becomes widely adopted as a medium of exchange. And that's uh, the textbook definition of money is not just that some people use it as a medium of exchange. Uh, Medium of exchange meaning they acquire it in one transaction in order to spend it in another transaction. So some people are doing that already, but it's not very widespread, and there are reasons why it's not very widespread. So there are challenges facing the Bitcoin community if they want to mainstream it as a medium of payment. And regarding the the economist profession, uh, recently Nuria Rubini, a prominent member of mainstream academia, at a, in a debate at the Milken Institute, it was actually this week on Wednesday, 2nd of May, uh-huh. he gave a very scientific explanation for cryptocurrencies. He said, quote, this is BS, it's BS, it's BS, <laughs> unquote. <laughs> <laughs> so my question to you is, why economists in general have such a reluctance or even disdain to study cryptocurrencies? Well, um, Rubini, of course, is famous as the person who predicted 11 out of the last three recessions. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, <laughs> why he's chosen to become fascinated with Bitcoin, I don't know. But it's it's been pointed out that if you bought every time he said it was crashing, you'd be much richer than you started. <laughs> because he started predicting its downfall back when it was in the hundreds of dollars. But... It doesn't fit the ordinary institutional apparatus that we that economists have become familiar and comfortable with. And of course, uh, in monetary economics, and I, I have an old paper about this, uh, the number one employer are the central banks. So if you think you might ever want to work with a central bank or for a central bank, be a visiting scholar or something at a central bank, you don't want to be too far out on a limb and people tend to internalize the the central bank point of view, which is that it's a good thing to have somebody in control of the entire monetary system. And the idea that independent agents, non-state actors can start their own money just sort of blows people's mind. Uh, especially when they're not familiar with the history of money, which is that it's mostly been a private phenomenon. It's only nationalized when the state decides to nationalize it, to take over the mints, 
to give a monopoly of currency issue to a favored bank to outlaw private currencies. But the natural state of money is it it's a creature of the market. But uh, most economists don't know that. Uh, a well-known historian named Harold James from Princeton did an op-ed piece uh, about a month and a half ago in which he said private money is really a very rare phenomenon historically. It's just an incredible misstatement of the facts. But I think it's a widespread attitude that money is somehow inherently a creature of the state. And through my career, I've tried to find a, the best argument for that position, and I'm still searching. It's hard to find a really well-articulated argument as to how or why money should be a creature of the state instead of a creature of the market. And you can't, you can't find one. I haven't found a very good, I, I see these sort of offhand remarks, but there isn't any argument behind it. It's just kind of an ex cathedra claim. Now there are people claim who have tried to seriously defend the claim that money is a public good, uh, or there's some which is a kind of technical term economists use for something that the market fails to produce efficiently. But there's no evidence that markets fail to produce media of exchange. They've done it for centuries. In the case of Bitcoin in particular, uh, it's now kind of in, in the minds of many economists, it's associated with tax evasion and black markets and money laundering the same sort of charges that uh, Ken Rogoff makes against large denomination fiat banknotes, $100 bills, 500 euro notes. Uh, so Rogoff not only wants to ban large denomination banknotes, he also wants to restrict the use of Bitcoin. He and I are going to have a debate in the uh, Soho Forum, the same venue that uh, Selgin and Murphy debated in, uh, in December. Oh, fantastic. So that should be fun. Isn't it ironic that the last vestige of freedom in the current monetary system is the state paper currency? Yes, it's it's the last thing that's uh, not easily trackable, that respects people's financial privacy. But there's almost nobody defending financial privacy within mainstream economics anymore. It's considered, uh, you know, if if you're not doing anything wrong, why do you have anything to hide? We should all live in a financial panopticon where the authorities can see every transaction. It's actually the this is the fourth the fourth function of money, the modern fourth function of money that Andreas Antonopoulos, a prominent figure in the cryptocurrency community, he says that we have the unit of account, middle of exchange, store of value, and then the fourth function is the system of control, and that's what money has become in in, in the twenty first century. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of truth to that. This episode of Crypto Voices is brought to you by HODL HODL, the cryptocurrency peer-to-peer exchange that does not hold your funds. On HODL HODL, all trades happen directly between buyers and sellers of both Bitcoin and Litecoin out of or into any fiat currency of your choice, no middleman involved. Each time there's a trade, a contract is created between the buyer and seller where the exchange generates a unique multi-sig escrow address into which the crypto seller safely deposits the funds until all steps of the trade conclude. HODL HODL itself does not touch the funds nor have its own wallet interacting with your trade. HODL HODL is a cheap, fast, effective way to sell some fiat paper tickets and buy some sound crypto. And until July 2018, you'll be pleasantly greeted with 0% commissions and SegWit support. The exchange requires no verification and is truly global. So wherever you are, go to hodlhodl.com today, get some Bitcoin, get some Litecoin, and we wish the team at HODL HODL all the best and thank them for their support of Crypto Voices. I think you made a great point as well about the uh, the Fed being the largest employer for these economists and these type of types of people that talk about this, and you can see where their principles and, and first principles lie uh, with these arguments. But um, well, it's interesting. Uh, so let's let's move on then to uh, a couple specific things with Bitcoin regarding its supply. It's famous, obviously, Bitcoin in particular, uh, twenty one million. Um, and that, that seems uh, to be a number that's going to uh, be fixed uh, 
for a very long time, if not forever. Uh, but it's very unique. Uh, we asked Dr. Selgin uh, about this. He pointed out to us uh, on our show, obviously it's, it's very unique in, in monetary history. I'm sure you'll say the same. But uh, I, I'm curious about your, your thoughts on how that supply uh, affects Bitcoin's role as money. Because obviously we have gold. That's sort of a market-based, gold and silver market-based money. Uh, you know, it's true that it's fixed supply in the ground, but it, it always grows every year. So gold, gold is a market-based inflationary supply. And then fiat, of course, is by decree or an arbitrary uh, supply. But Bitcoin is obviously very different. It's fixed. Right. What would you observe economically? Well, so this is the, this is the remarkable innovation of Bitcoin. And back in the 80s, I wrote a paper about what kind of monetary institutions would a free market deliver? And following a famous paper from the 70s by Ronald Coase, I said, uh, an issuer of money is issuing, uh, especially of any kind of money that's not a physical coin, any kind of representative money, uh, fiat money or redeemable bank-issued money, faces the challenge of convincing people that they're not going to overissue it. And Coase uh, talked about the problem of uh, a monopolist trying to convince people to buy units of a good above their at a price above their marginal cost. So the example I like to use is uh, limited edition art prints. Right? So you can buy a print of uh, a silk screen or a, a lithograph by a famous artist. You might pay, let's say, $300. But clearly, it doesn't take the studio $300 to take a, one more piece of paper, slap the ink on the lithograph, and pull off one more print. So before you pay $300, you have to ask yourself, how do I know that next week they won't start selling it for $200 and the week after that for $100? And the way the studio convinces you that that's not their plan is they number the art prints. So it's a limited edition. Uh, whereas the traditional model with money is... How do you know we're not going to overissue it? Because we offer to buy it back from you. We'll pay the bearer on demand. If you don't trust our banknote, come in and we'll give you a gold or silver coin back for it. So the, the limited edition model is, is out there for some kinds of assets, but it's traditionally been the kind of assets that, like art prints, uh, collectibles, that people hope will appreciate but they're going to hang on to, they're not thinking about using them as a medium of exchange. And in this old paper, I said, well, it wouldn't be a very good model for a medium of exchange because you want some assurance of its future purchasing power in a medium of exchange rather than just the assurance that it won't be hyper expanded in quantity. But uh, Bitcoin came along and that is their model. It's the limited edition model. We're only going to create so many units. And that gives people the assurance that it won't be hyper expanded. And of course, Bitcoin has the other feature that there's no corporate entity that issues it. So there's nobody who would benefit by uh, being able to ish issue additional copies like the artist studio would be able to benefit if they surreptitiously issued more prints. So it's a credible commitment. It's a believable commitment that there will never be more than 21 million units and that you know the, the path of growth to get to the 21 million is all pre-programmed. Uh, so that gives people reason to believe that it's not going to be hyperinflated. Uh, the supply, in fact, is only going to grow very slowly. So the value is can possibly, if other people get on board, uh, appreciate. Now, and, and people bought into it, and uh, from a price below a dollar per Bitcoin, of course, it's now in the thousands. I did check t today's price, it's above 9,000 today. So uh, that's quite remarkable, and that economists as a profession sort of failed to predict that such a thing would happen, or even I, I was skeptical that it even could happen. but. Uh, I was wrong about that, so I try to be modest about predicting what uh, what lies in the future. But I mentioned earlier that Bitcoin has challenges uh, becoming a medium of exchange, and one of them is that this feature of a fixed supply, a supply that doesn't respond 
to the price, right? For ordinary commodities, if the price of apples goes up, apple growers will plant more trees and you'll get a bigger supply at some point in the future. Uh, that doesn't happen with Bitcoin, which means that variations in demand are only reflected in the price, not in the quantity. The quantity doesn't respond to variations in demand or price. That gives it a volatility uh, in the price, and that makes it a kind of risky asset to hold uh, it, as uh, the, the fund that you're going to, say, pay your rent out of. Right? So it, it's fine if you have a certain amount of your wealth that you're willing to speculate in, you're willing to uh, go through the ups and downs, uh, of course, hoping that they're mostly ups. But for a payment medium, you want something that um, has more predictable purchasing power. At least that's been the standard view and that's been my view. So it remains to be seen whether Bitcoin can spread despite price volatility or whether the price volatility will settle down um, as it matures. We haven't really seen that. Um, Although the volume has gone up uh, in the last five years, and certainly the price has gone up, uh, the volatility of the price hasn't really changed much. It went down for a while, it's come back up. Dr. Selgin mentioned as well, uh, you know, I, I, he's, I remember specifically at one point he said, mention the volatility, but you know, he said, I hasten to say it would perhaps be very different if it was a medium of exchange and, and, and uh, you know, circulating with high demand and, and customers that demanded it throughout the world. Sure, we, we see the same thing in gold. So when gold was the world's money, its purchasing power was very stable. People didn't buy and sell it against other currencies. It was the currency. So it wasn't a speculative vehicle. But since gold has been demonetized by all the world's governments, now it's a speculative vehicle. Now the price goes up and down. Uh, it's not quite as volatile as Bitcoin. But it is something that you'd be reluctant to put a large part of your payment balances into because uh, there's more risk associated with it. Still very small, though, as far as the world's, you know, world adoption. I mean, if you even on the high side, say like 100 million people use it, you know, 5 billion, say, adults in the world. I mean, below 2% of the world uses it. So... Do you think that the volatility argument just, you know, you just simply have to wait then to see uh, to see if it really truly uh, will come down if it gets adopted? And do you think that it will, in fact, come down when it increases in adoption? Uh, well, I think we have to wait and see uh, how much adoption grows. There are lots of use cases for Bitcoin that are promised, that are in development, uh, that are forthcoming. And so we have to see whether they really catch on. In a way, those would be kind of after the fact, creating a non-monetary use as uh, we had with gold and silver before they became money. So the volatility of price is a challenge. The second challenge I wanted to mention is the congestion in the uh, Bitcoin network, which we saw last summer, um, which eventually led to the fork and uh, that's a problem that may have a technical solution, right? People are working on side chains and the lightning network and ways to put less uh, stress or less congestion, I should say, into the actual Bitcoin blockchain. But it remains to be seen whether that will work in a way that gives people confidence and that, that will be widely adopted um, and would, which will stabilize the demand for Bitcoin. And the question of volatility is something that even Satoshi Nakamoto himself addressed, I think it was back in 2009 or 2010 before disappearing. And he said something like, uh, indeed, there is nobody to act as a central bank or Federal Reserve to adjust the money supply as the population of users grows. Right. And then he said, that would have required a trusted party to determine the value, because I don't know a way for software to know the real world value of things. Right. If there was some clever way, or if you wanted to trust someone to actively manage the money supply to peg it to something, the rules could have been programmed for that. And that's actually now, there's some a few, they call it stable coins, 
and there are I think three projects that they attempt to sure. provide a decentralized central bank so they can adjust the money supply so to have a stable value. Yeah, no, I've written about Tether, which is a dollar pegged stable coin. Although whether it's really a coin is is a semantic issue, I guess, but it's a crypto asset. Yeah, that's that's an exciting possibility that someone will come up with a stable coin where it doesn't take a committee of humans to decide how to vary the volume, the quantity in order to stabilize the purchasing power, but it's somehow programmed. But as as you quoted Satoshi as saying, it's hard to figure out how to get a program that accepts data from the outside world without making it subject to manipulation by people who are feeding the data. So some way to either automate the data feed or create a trusted uh, body that really can be trusted. Uh, that's the challenge. If we want to uh, have a coin that is that where the quantity is automatically uh, altered to keep its purchasing power constant or uh, to keep the amount of spending uh, constant, the, the nominal income in that coin constant. I hope somebody figures that out because that would be fascinating and potentially very attractive. So there's the other these other projects by central banks this time, which they also call the central bank issued uh, cryptocurrencies or digital currencies. And the Bank of England is actually doing a lot of research on this matter. Yeah. And to me, it, it kind of sounds like saying a central bank cryptocurrency sounds like a cold fire or the square circle, or as my professor Huerta de Soto used to say, the virgin prostitute. <laughs> uh, so, do you think this is a real, a, a really inevitable uh, phenomenon to eventually have a cryptocurrency or a digital currency or the digitally, the digitally issued dollar? It's certainly feasible to have a digitally issued claim on a central bank, and of course, commercial banks own digital claims on the central bank called bank reserves. Those are purely book entries. There's no slip of paper. So it's it's digital, but it's by no means a cryptocurrency. And it's hard to imagine a central bank wanting to issue an anonymous uh, currency or pseudonymous currency uh, where they don't track who has the balances at each moment. Uh, so what's called a central bank digital currency is very different. It just means any individual can have an account balance on the balance sheet of the central bank instead of having their account at a commercial bank and then the commercial bank in turn having an account at the central bank. So it cut out the middleman and let people have digital claims on the central bank. That seems to me f feasible, but just a bad idea. It's actually been tried. Uh, I wrote a a blog piece about this a couple of months ago. Yeah, that was my next question. It, 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 it was tried in Ecuador. So Ecuador is an unusual case in that it doesn't have its own national currency. It's a dollarized country. But because of that, the government doesn't earn much seniorage from issuing money, and they wanted to get in on that. So they developed a digital currency, which is a digital dollar, uh, transferable through cell phone apps, uh, and that way they could get a little float. The, the digital dollars held by Ecuadorian uh, citizens would be like interest-free loans to the government of Ecuador, which normally has to pay about 8% to borrow in dollars on the world market. So zero interest loans, very attractive. <laughs> so they spent millions of dollars on the software and on the hardware and on launching publicity, promotion, they hardly got any users. And after three years, they've now shut it down because it was such a flop. And the reason it was a flop is people didn't trust the central bank. And central, well, that's the first reason. The second reason is central banks are not, there's no reason to think they would be good at retail payments. You actually have to know something about customer relations. <laughs> uh, you actually have to make your product attractive and convenient to people. And that's not the business central banks have ever been in. They've only, they only deal with commercial banks. They don't deal with the public. So this uh, something you can use to 
buy coffee with is a retail product. There's no reason to think central banks would be good at providing a retail product. Um, and it's not clear to me why they would want to or why it would ever be an attractive product to the public. There's a, a similar story by the Bank of England. I think it was two years ago, the Bank of England, they ceased offering banking services uh, to their staff. I see. And the reason why, the, the reason uh, why was they couldn't compete with banking services by the commercial bank. So they just <laughs> closed all accounts for the banking staff. I'll have to Google that story. That's a great story. So let's move on uh, now to, to talk a little bit more about central banks and money and, and Bitcoin. Like to start with the idea of uh, of reserves, uh, high powered money. Can you just very briefly, uh, quick one hundred and one? What is the point of a reserve for the central bank when it comes to uh, say the gold standard, and then when it comes to a fiat standard? What's the point of central bank reserves? Okay, so let's start with an ordinary commercial bank uh, that issues demandable debt denominated in units of gold banknotes and checking deposits. They need to have some gold on hand uh, to pay any customer who comes to the counter and wants to redeem. But more importantly, in order to pay other banks into which claims on the first bank have been deposited, either banknotes or checks. So just for clearing and settlement with other banks, banks need reserves. That is, they need to have the asset to which they're deposits and check uh, banknotes are claims to in a gold standard that's uh, gold coins. So basically reserves are in order to avoid default at the clearinghouse or default in an over-the-counter uh, payment. When central banks started uh, issuing uh, banknotes and opening deposit accounts uh, either for the public or for other banks. And for a long time, the Bank of England was a private institution, so you individuals could open accounts there. Uh, they likewise need reserves because they're basically acting like uh, commercial banks. Uh, in, under the international gold standard, the, where central banks monopolize the issue of currency within their home country, uh, the reason, they, the main reason they needed reserves was to settle payments with other central banks. So ownership of gold would, it didn't have to be physically shipped all the time, but ownership of gold would change hands between central banks. And a central bank that was losing reserves to other central banks was getting a signal that we've got too many claims in circulation that more than people want, and that's why the net balance of clearing is against us. So we need to contract. So the international gold standard had this automatic mechanism for constraining central banks to the extent they played by the rules, constraining the amount they issued to the amount the public wanted to hold. Uh, and it, it wasn't uh, a tight enough control to avoid all the mischief that central banks can do, but it did work in the long run and it maintained a kind of equilibrium in the distribution of gold around the world. So when central banks went off the gold standard, that is they said we're not going to we're going to stop paying gold for our liabilities. Now they're just fiat. Right. Uh, and on the Federal Reserve note, it used to say we'll pay the bearer on demand in lawful money, meaning gold or silver, and now it just says this note is legal tender for all debts public and private. <laughs> They no longer need gold reserves. So since the end of the Bretton Woods system, the U.S. has no longer needed a gold reserve in order to meet any obligations. They haven't sold it, though. They hang on to it for whatever reason. They think it would look bad if they started liquidating their gold. Some central banks have sold off their gold. Uh, Canada, for example, just because they thought it was wasteful to hold it. Uh, Russia, because they couldn't pay their international debts otherwise. Uh, but a, a central bank with a fiat money that's not redeemable for anything and which is a, has a floating exchange rate, so there's no promise that will keep its value stable in terms of some other currency, uh, doesn't need any reserves. 
if you have a fixed exchange rate to the dollar, you need reserves of dollars. But a bank that has a central bank, a fiat currency that has a floating exchange rate, doesn't need any reserves at all uh, because there's nothing it can be redeemed for. So reserves have become an anachronism. Could you flesh it out just a little bit more as far as how uh, that inf- you know maybe affects inflation or the business cycle in today's fiat money world? Well, it, it means that the central bank is no longer constrained by the loss of reserves to the rest of the world. Right. And therefore, it has carte blanche to depreciate its currency as much as it likes. And we saw that the first episode of that, of widespread fiat money, uh, is during World War One, And some countries took the opportunity to print lots of money to try to pay for war expenses that way. Uh, and that basically killed the international gold standard because there was no way to go back to gold, at least at the original parity, when you had two times as many or three times as many claims uh, on the central bank circulating. So you either had to, the central banks would have either had to devalue officially, reduce the gold content of the monetary unit so that the gold that they did have wasn't being overclaimed, or uh, to have a deflation, pull back in the extra money and let the price level go back to where it was before the war in order to resume at the old parity. Uh, and they didn't really do either of those things. And so the world monetary system has been kind of messed up ever since. It was especially chaotic during the interwar period. After the Second World War, the Bretton Woods system took over, under which the U.S. dollar was redeemable for gold, and European currencies were redeemable for dollars. So it was an indirect redeemability or a gold exchange system. You could exchange pounds for dollars, and if you were a foreign central bank, you could exchange dollars for gold. Uh, But since 1971, when Nixon closed the gold window, that last link to gold was severed. And that means that there's no longer a constraint on the expansion of central banks. They can choose whatever expansion of the money supply and therefore whatever price inflation rate uh, they like. Their control is less than perfect, but, you know, in the long run, they can correct course and keep inflation within uh, bounds. And, of course, a lot of countries have adopted this as an official policy. They have an official inflation rate target. And it works better than, I mean, they've been able to hit the targets better than a lot of us expected. Uh, But for that, you don't need reserves. For that, you just need to control the quantity of the central bank's liabilities and thereby the amount of money created by the banking system. So looking at the, the current monetary experiment, this irredeemable paper currency system that we've been living for over 40 years now, what do you see as the future of this system? What is the end game? It's, it seems to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see any real discussion or movement from central banks to reform or try to improve this system. And a couple of years back, actually it was 2013 at the Bretton Woods conference, and there's still a conference called Bretton Woods, and Paul Volcker addressed this very issue, saying that the current system is in, is unstable, it leads to economic crisis cycles, but there is no answer on how to reform it. So what is your, your view on this? Well, I think he's right. There isn't a lot of consensus on how to reform it. There, there is concern of, uh, about what you're saying, that we don't have any reason to be confident that the system won't at some point deteriorate dramatically. So we have seen hyperinflations in some places and sometimes, uh, and there's nothing that guarantees us that it won't happen uh, in the United States or in Europe, other than popular pressure. I mean, the reason the U.S. pulled back from double-digit inflation is that it made the president, Jimmy Carter, under which it, it, it arose, very unpopular and he realized he needed to do something about inflation and appointed Paul Volcker, who you just mentioned, uh, to rein it in. Right. But those kinds of constraints, uh, the sort of vigilance of the public and 
the responsiveness of the government to the public pressure can be eroded over time, and it especially gets eroded in emergencies, in crises. So just like World War II, uh, the gold standard was suspended, and the public went along with it because it was necessary for the war effort. And then after a few years of living without gold redeemability, there wasn't as much pressure to return to it uh, anytime soon. And the efforts to return to it weren't very serious. If there's some kind of fiscal emergency, either a war or something else, that leads the government to find it expedient in any particular nation to print lots of money as an immediate source of revenue, uh, the system is very fragile to that. So yeah, that gives, it, it, I'm not, so I'm not saying hyperinflation is gonna happen next year or even double digit inflation is gonna happen uh, in the next few years, but there isn't any long run anchor. Now that kind of unease and, and the value of having some kind of believable commitment has been emphasized by some economists in recent years. Kidlet and Prescott famously argued for rules rather than discretion on the grounds that if you can't trust the central bank not to inflate, then the public will expect it to inflate, and then the central bank will be drawn to inflate in order not to disappoint the public, in order not to have a surprise, surprisingly low rate of inflation. So you can get into a kind of self-feeding loop. Uh, and in response to that kind of concern, we do see inflation targeting becoming more popular. Uh, but inflation rate targets are not probably the best way to constrain central banks. And of course, they leave central banks in place with all their sovereign immunity and their ability to violate whatever commitments they have um, with impunity. So, you know, my own view is that uh, we were in a safer place when we didn't put all our eggs in one basket, when we had dozens of issuers of money, each holding their own reserves on a commodity money system, and the commodity money system was worldwide. But I don't have any uh, you know, blueprint for how to get back to that or how to reinstitute a, a new kind of commodity money system. So probably the most important thing right now is to give people options. Make sure there are no legal obstacles to people who don't trust the government's currency to using something else, whether it's gold or Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency. And those kind of legal barriers are very much uh, in place right now. I mean, the, the federal government in the U.S. shut down the e-gold system uh, and shut down the so-called Liberty Dollar, which was a silver-based system on various pretexts, but it seemed that they were actually concerned about competition. <laughs> I mean, it looked that way. The main legal uh, justification or what they appeal to is the danger of money laundering. So it's the anti-money laundering and know your customer rules, which are being used to suppress alternative currencies. And we actually had uh, Zuko Wilcox from uh, Zcash, Zcash currency on uh, last week. And, and he said, uh, you know the same thing. That's that's always going to be the boogeyman uh, for the for the short term here, at least with crypto. But but I actually wanted to circle it back to this point on reserves that we started with uh, a couple questions ago. So we talked about reserves under gold standard. We talked about reserves under fiat standard. Right. The astute student who shares our principles may think that that it's getting less stable. But um, there are people in the Bitcoin community, the cryptocurrency community, that whether in passing or in uh, seriousness over the years, going back many years, have written uh, that it's possible that Bitcoin can become the monetary base of the banking system, of a new banking system, or a, a new reserve standard. How do you feel about this idea? Well, uh, yeah. So one of the solutions to the congestion problem in Bitcoin is to not use the blockchain for every transaction but to have some off-chain transactions or side-chain transactions, which are batched together and netted and late, only later settled uh, on blockchain. And that, of course, is what banks do with the interbank clearing system. It's not every cup of coffee that's immediately uh, settled because uh, that's inefficient. And that would help relieve the congestion problem. But for that to be happening, there has to be widespread retail adoption 
of Bitcoin as a, the denomination of the payments. But yeah, it would, uh, it would help the Bitcoin cause if there were Bitcoin denominated banking. And so the a good question is why don't we see it already or what is stopping it from having from arising it will arise if it offers people advantages and the two obvious advantages are one you could earn interest on your bitcoin denominated balances the way you can earn interest on a dollar bank account and two there could be lower transaction fees if it helps avoid the congestion problem right because transaction fees arise on the blockchain now if you want to give priority to your transaction you got to pay to get to the front of the line so if it relieves the congestion problem that would be an attraction to putting your money in a bitcoin bank and letting them uh, process the transaction rather than uh, going directly to the blockchain uh, so those that's the potential attraction what's the obstacle well for a Bitcoin bank to pay interest on Bitcoin deposits, it needs Bitcoin borrowers. It needs people willing to borrow money, take out loans denominated in Bitcoin. And given the volatility of the value of Bitcoin, that's a kind of risky prospect. You don't know what you're going to have to pay back in real terms, in purchasing power terms, if you were to take out a loan in Bitcoin. There may also be legal obstacles. I'm sure that uh, the banking regulators would say, wait, wait, if you're taking deposits and making loans, that makes you a bank and we get to regulate you. And so we can regulate you in such a way that we take away all the advantages that you might have offered people. I don't know what the legal status is, but th those seem to me to be the two most important obstacles. Yeah. And there's one more item as well. Uh, I wanted to get your thought on this. We interviewed uh, a gentleman named Eric Voskuel. He uh, is a developer for the LeBitcoin protocol. Interesting guy. He's in the Navy and uh, you know, developer, entrepreneur. He's pretty good on economics too. He said an interesting thing. I, I'd never quite heard it put this way before, but he's like, it really doesn't translate if you describe Bitcoin as a reserve-based system for the banking system that way, like, like you did for gold or even fiat, because well, specifically with gold, if I'm you know, conveying his argument, as you said, gold as a reserve is insurance for when your fiduciary, you know, your loans go bad. Bitcoin doesn't translate that way because Bitcoin is simply just savings. Like the better word for Bitcoin, if you hold it in your wallet, is savings. Like there's a reason why the state ended up with the gold and we ended up with the paper. But with Bitcoin, reserves don't really work that way. It's just, it's just savings. He kept, he kept sort of making that point. What do you think about that idea? And I don't really get it. <laughs> I mean, Bitcoin is an asset. Gold is an asset. It can be held by a trusted intermediary who issues claims that are debts denominated in that asset and redeemable in that asset. Uh, and so those claims to Bitcoin, we can imagine, are like bank deposits in that they are not ownership titles to pieces of gold, but they are demandable debts denominated in gold. So I don't know why you couldn't have the same thing, de demandable debts denominated in Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I think you could. His argument, and I, I hope that I'm conveying it the right way, but um, I think his argument was just that it would not really be the Bitcoin system anymore. Like if you had it basically where, say, the banking, the commercial banks, if the commercial banks are the only ones that are holding real Bitcoin, and then there's just Bitcoin fiduciary, Bitcoin certificates right. out in the system, then it's just not Bitcoin anymore. That's, uh, that's, just something, that's just something different. It's not a trustless system anymore. It's a centralized system. That's, it's certainly true. It's not a trustless system anymore. But when you go from gold coins going hand to hand to gold coins in the vault and we write checks, that's not a trustless system either, but it's still a gold standard system. A gold standard doesn't mean only gold coins circulate. And so you could have a Bitcoin standard to cite the title of a recent book. Right, right. Where Bitcoin is the settlement medium and it's the unit of account, but not all payments are made by transferring title to Bitcoin. So in principle, you don't see an issue with it? No, I don't see the, the distinction he's making between Bitcoin and gold. I mean, it, you're, it would be a change from the pure peer-to-peer -peer system, yes, but it would still be a Bitcoin-based monetary system.
The question I wanted to ask Larry, I think he's kind of answered, but I think it's it's worth uh, perhaps delving a, a little bit more. And it's something related to a quote by Hayek that he used to say, uh, quotes, it is a misfortune that money is a noun and not an adjective, describing a property which different things could possess to varying degrees, uh, unquote. And in a similar way, I tend to think that it is also a misfortune that cryptocurrencies or digital currencies are called currencies or money and not just digital assets or digital goods which may or may not be used as money and to varying degrees. And this is actually, I think, it might prevent economists as well from even considering Bitcoin or, or other digital assets as something serious as their standard of analysis. Because it's always, is Bitcoin money or not? That's always the question. And then if it's not money, it's nothing. It's like the, the money or nothing fallacy. Yeah. And so th this is something that I, that I wanted to, to perhaps, perhaps elaborate a bit more. No, I agree with you. It, it's when we define the noun money as a commonly accepted medium of exchange. There's a a non-binary term in there, which is commonly. It's not zero or one. It's a matter of degree, and so something can be money within a small community or a larger community, or and there are always going to be borderline cases of something that has more moneyness than another asset, but less moneyness than a third asset. Um, yeah, so I have no objection to, to that point. Um, and so crypto asset, I think you're right, is, is a more inclusive term. We don't need to beg the question of whether it's a currency or really well suited to be a currency in the sense of a commonly accepted hand-to-hand, peer-to-peer uh, medium of exchange. Uh, but, of course, that was the way it was initially presented. It was a peer-to-peer payment system. Uh, so people naturally started talking about it as a currency. But you're right. And when we read about other uses of blockchain for other kinds of purposes, record-keeping purposes, it's not being used. Ether uh, can be used in other ways than as a medium of payment. It's a broader class of assets than just currency. I think that's right. Very good. Dr. White, just one more uh, before we close, maybe a bit of a lighthearted one. John Oliver did a, uh, a nice expose on cryptocurrencies a couple weeks ago, maybe like over a month ago. Any chance that you saw that? John Oliver, uh, last week tonight is the show. No, I mean, I've seen the line quoted that Bitcoin combines everything you don't know about computers with everything you don't know about money. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And it, there was, I thought it was a pretty good piece, actually. It was not like a, a, a hack job or like trying to just denounce it as a Ponzi scheme or whatever that they didn't understand. But uh, they had this one sort of term in there. He said, uh, he said you know, there's, there's a blockchain Dan now. There's just this guy, blockchain Dan. You know who he is. He's in your office. He's in your classroom. There's at least one of them everywhere where he, he's telling you things that sound true. They sound good, but you just don't want to hear about, you know, like, like value is subjective. And, you know, why do you think the dollars have any value? Like it was pretty funny, I thought, to dream up this character, Blockchain Dan, which I'm sure every day, at least in the US, you know, in Europe and many places is becoming more and more prominent. We get these enthusiasts in crypto. So I'm just curious. Yes. I've met them on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, or, or I'm curious, you know, as, as a lecturer, like how many students, maybe even compared to say, you know, 20 years ago when you were lecturing and just the enthusiasm, is, is crypto, can you feel that, that this enthusiasm is, is real? Is it growing or is it? I used to, uh, well, at the graduate level, the students know what I've uh, done research on. So, in fact, I learned, the first time I learned about Bitcoin was in 2010 from one of my students who, if he had written up the paper, he wrote about it then, he would, if he had published it then, he would be regarded as an early pioneer. Uh, but this semester, I had a student who at the beginning of the semester introduced himself and said, I'm taking this class with you instead of one of the other instructors who teaches it because I read some stuff you wrote about Bitcoin and that's what I'm enthusiastic about. And I mentioned him uh, off microphone uh, earlier as the guy who has the Bitcoin price right on the face of his cell phone whenever he looks at the time, yeah. he sees the price. Uh, that never happened before. <laughs> so at the undergraduate level, I've occasionally had students who, in the past who've said, I read something you wrote about the 19th century banknote system and I'm interested in that. Uh, but 
now if, if a student is at all familiar with any work I've done, it's more likely to be Bitcoin. And this is a kind of lighthearted. I started out um, some months ago to write a book about the gold standard. And then I considered the fact that I wasn't getting any invitations to come give lectures on the gold standard, but I was getting invitations to come to Bitcoin conferences. <laughs> and so now it's going to be a book about the contrast between gold and Bitcoin. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> the compare, compare and contrast. And maybe then uh, people will become interested in the sort of broader issue of alternative monetary standards. But that's uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is where the excitement is now. There's no doubt about that. Are you more optimistic about like the future of the financial system because of Bitcoin or because Bitcoin exists than if it wasn't? I hope that it can provide um, an alternative haven to the sort of dominant financial system, which has all kinds of political economy problems, let's politely call them cronyism problems. So uh, the fact that there is now an alternative that didn't used to exist, yes, is a cause for uh, optimism. But I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. That is, I'm not convinced it's going to sweep the world. I'm, I'm waiting to see. I'm glad that it's out there. And I hope that people continue to develop it and find uses for it and find ways to keep governments from censoring it. Because uh, in the end, having, uh, you know, being able to vote with your pocketbook is the most important kind of financial freedom. I think that's good enough. Very, uh, very good way to leave it, Dr. White. As we close, where can our listeners find out more about your writings, what you do, some of your thoughts on, on these topics? Well, as uh, you mentioned, I blog at altm.org, alt-m.org. They can Google Lawrence H. White and find either my page at George Mason University or my page at the Cato Institute and go from there. We will link all of those in the show notes. And just uh, curious, regarding the book that you mentioned, is that the progress uh, pretty far on that or? No. <laughs> Since I've reconceived it, I've, I've regained my enthusiasm for it. So I'm hoping this summer to get a few chapters written. Great. Well, uh, definitely we'll, we'll stay tuned to that. And uh, yeah, really appreciate you coming on the show, Dr. White. Uh, really happy to have you on. Hope to speak to you again in the future and wish you all the best. Okay. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it.